education is wasted on the young, isn't it? <laughs> I've been thinking back to my elementary, junior high and middle school or in high school years this week, thinking of the arrogance. How many of you have ever uttered the, the phrase when you were a child in school, what's the practical application of this? <laughs> it was usually in algebra class that I said that most frequently. <laughs> history? Oh, I liked history, but... <clears throat> Young people don't understand the value of what is being taught for the most part. I know I certainly didn't have any use for math of just about any kind. I took three semesters of Spanish. First semester I got an A, the second semester I got a B, the third semester I got a C. That was the last semester I had because I knew where that was going. And I think in large part it was due to the fact that there was no pract practical application in where I was living in those days. I would never use Spanish, but you had to learn a foreign language, and so I struggled with that. English grammar. Really? Do you really need to, to learn anything more about speaking your mother tongue than, than to speak it? You know, what's all that yeah. verbs and nouns and pronouns and what's a gerund anyway? I, I, I had no clue that there would come a time when, when that might be important. Um, realizing years later that maybe I should have paid a little bit more attention in those classes. Ironically, it wasn't until I was in college, taking three semesters of New Testament Greek, that I began to understand the conjugation of verbs in English. And conjugation, what does that mean anyway? Uh, so here's the definition, conjugation the variation of a form of a verb in an inflected language such as Greek or Latin by which are identified the voice, the mood, the tense, the number, and the person. Now that just went in one ear and out the other, didn't it? Yeah. <laughs> At least that's what happened to me in elementary school. But as I think about it, I begin to realize that this would be important information to know if you were translating from one language to another, whether it's Spanish to English or Greek to English. There are people who really know about conjugating verbs and what all those different tenses mean. This is important stuff. So, we're going to be looking at a passage in Scripture, Mark chapter 2, beginning with verse 13, if you want to turn there in your Bible. I'm going to read it three different times this morning. This first time, I'm reading from a resource that I have in my office called an interlinear Bible. That means that there are line after line the Greek words written in the Greek alphabet the text of Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, written in the Greek letters, and then interspersed between them are the 
translation of what those words mean. They don't change the order of the words to make it more understandable for English speakers. It's just the order of the Greek words and then the translation into English of what those words mean, taking into consideration all of that conjugating verbs and parts of speech and that stuff that I don't really truly understand. So here's how that interlinear Bible translates Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. And he went forth again by the sea, and all the crowd came to him, and he taught them. And passing along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the custom house, and says to him, follow me. And rising up, he followed him. And it comes to pass, he reclines him in the house of him, and many tax collectors and sinners reclined with Jesus and the disciples of him. For there were many, and they followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, seeing that he eats with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples of him, With tax collectors and sinners does he eat? And hearing, Jesus says to them, not need having the ones being strong of a physician, but the ones ill having. I came not to call righteous men, but sinners. Now, if you had to read that in your morning devotions, you probably wouldn't hang in there very long, would you? <laughs> I, I, was, I was thinking this is a lot like Spanish, where adjectives come after the noun instead of the before the noun. So it's not the red balloon, it's the balloon red. Right, Bea, did I get that right? Is that typically how it's done? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the word order is different and, and lots of things are different. So now let me read it from the New International Version. Mark chapter two, beginning with verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. A little bit easier to get, right? It's helpful to have translators and editors, people who are knowledgeable in the original Greek language and know their English conjugations as well. It's helpful for them to be able to turn that Greek language into something that is meaningful and inspiring to us. But there's something that's, that's even more interesting to me, at least in this passage, and that's that Mark uses a literary technique here which most of those translators chose to ignore. 
the literary technique I'm speaking of is called the historical present tense. The historical present tense. It's also sometimes called the dramatic present or the narrative present. And essentially, it's the use of present tense verbs when narrating past events. The use of present tense verbs when narrating past events. Mark tells, is telling a story here that took place 30-some years before the time that he was writing things that happened in the past. Yet, periodically, he mixes in present tense verbs. He does this over 150 times in the course of his gospel, using the historical present tense where most of the other gospel writers would have used the simple past tense. Matthew only uses the historical present tense 78 times in the course of his Gospel Luke only uses it six times. So now, for the third time, I'd like to read this passage, but I'd like to read it this time using the proper tense, the ones that Mark actually used when he wrote this, interspersing these historical present tenses amid all of the other past tenses. So follow along here. Once again, Jesus went, which is, the you know, it's past tense, right? He went out beside the lake. A large crowd came, again, it's past tense, as we would expect, came to him, and he began, again, past tense, to teach them. As he walks, which is present tense instead of walked, as he walks, Mark says, as he walks along, he saw, reverting back to the past tense, Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus tells him, present tense. And Levi got up, reverting back to the past, and followed him. While Jesus is having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for, they, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, see that he eats, instead of saw him eating, when they see that he eats with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus says, present tense, to them, it is not those being healthy and interestingly enough, in, in the regular New International Version, healthy is, is, I think it's a noun, healthy versus the sick, speaking of people who are healthy. But in the Greek, the, the word healthy is a verb. So on hearing this, Jesus says to them, it is not those being healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill, present tense. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You're saying, Pastor David, who cares? <laughs> Thanks for that grammar lesson, but I could have gotten that back when I was a kid in school. 
It's interesting that virtually every English translation, the translators put all of this in the past tense because that's what makes sense. We're telling a story that happened in the past, so you use the past tense consistently. Even if Mark uses this historical present tense, we translate it past tense because that's what we're used to. That's what makes sense to us. So why does Mark use the historical present? I hope you're asking that question because that's where this sermon is going. (laughs) For one thing, it makes the story more interesting and exciting. I mentioned that another phrase, use of this is the, the dramatic present tense. It makes the story more interesting and exciting. Why does it make it more interesting and exciting? Because if the story took place in the past, as Mike Beaver so richly pointed out, it's history, which for many of us is something of very little interest. Who cares? That's, it's over and it's done with. It's past. It's, it's not relevant anymore. But if the story is taking place in the present, then there's suspense, right? Who knows where this might go? Who knows how people might respond to that? Who knows what might happen next? Rather than being past tense history, it gives us the sense that this is a continually unfolding story that's taking place right now. The historical present emphasizes the fact that while we were not there with Jesus, Jesus is here with us in the present tense. It serves to make Jesus a contemporary of those who are reading the passage or or hearing the account read. In other words, Emmanuel still means God is with us. And so in particular, as Mark is writing this gospel 30-some years after the events that took place, he's writing this most likely in Rome based on Peter's stories that he was telling him. And he's writing it first and foremost primarily to the Christians who were in Rome, to those who had been scattered from Rome in recent years under the, the persecution of Nero. Mark is writing this to the Roman Christians in such a way that he's encouraging them to be drawn into this 30-year-old story. This is not just history. This is something that's continuing to unfold in your lives right now. Jesus is still with us. He's still saying these things in the present tense. His authority and his grace and the comfort of Jesus are still present in your story. If this literary device was helpful for those who were living only 30 years after the story of Jesus took place, then how much more helpful is it for those of us who were living 2,000 years after these events took place? We are part of the unfolding story of Jesus to this very day. This is our story. So if Mark's use of the historical present makes Jesus truly present with me and my story and with you and your story, then what's going to change in the way we live? We are part of a present tense story, brothers and sisters, the future of which is not yet known to us, right? 
we know how the disciples lived their lives and how they turned the teachings and the miracles and the mentoring of Jesus into this revolutionary faith that turned the world upside down, but we really literally don't know what's happening in our part of this revolution tomorrow. Who are we going to talk to? What are they going to say? What challenges are they going to pose? What are we going to have to live through? And how is the grace of Jesus that was so richly available 2,000 years ago going to be available to us? How is it going to, to take what we say and what we do and turn it into this turn the world upside down revolution? We don't know yet, right? One of the helpful things that I've learned about the the, the scope of the Bible and the way it's told it says that it's like a, a five-act Shakespearean play. Act one is the story of creation. Act two is the story of the fall of sin. Act three is the story of what God is, has done through the nation of Israel, the people of God, Abraham and his descendants. Act four is the story of Jesus. Act 5, scene 1 is what we read in the book of Acts. It's the beginning of our story. Act 5, scene 2 is where we're living right now. And so we look back and we see the script of creation and the fall and Israel's history, their ups and downs. We hear the script of what Jesus said and did. We hear the script of what the apostles did in the book of Acts and the letters of Paul and others. But we don't have a script, do we? All we have is this script. So one person says that our role in this unfolding present tense work of God is to look back at the Old Testament and New Testament and see how those people responded to the grace of God and the, the challenges of sinfulness and improvise, so to speak. Mark is telling a story using these historical present verbs saying, this is an unfolding story. Jesus is still doing the same things. You can look back and see the script. How do they react? How do they respond? What do they say? How do they blow it? How were they successful? But we don't know what's going to happen. We need to know that God's grace is still with us, don't we? We need to know that the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is still at work in our minds and our hearts, right? In our actions and our words, right? So this is not ancient history, and Mark reminds us of that by inserting these present tense verbs from time to time. How are we going to resp respond to the saving grace of Jesus? What's going to happen next? How might we become part of what Jesus is still doing in our lives, in our world, this day and age? We also have the comfort of knowing that the crucified, resurrected, and ascended Jesus is still very much with us. Not just with us, but in us. In this particular story here in Mark chapter 2, Jesus' mission is just as relevant and vital and important in our world today as it was in Rome 2,000 years ago, right? Just as important and vital as it was in Capernaum or Nazareth or Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. 
Mark is reminding us that this is an unfolding mission story, present tense in our lives these days. There's a greater sense of urgency because it's stuff that we're still coping with, dealing with, responding to, opportunities that we are still taking advantage of. So we have a greater sense of urgency because of the way Mark tells the story. We have a greater level of confidence that Jesus is still with us and using us and working through us. And that he continues to call us to mission. This is not a completed story, is it? The battle has not, the, 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 the war has been won on the cross and resurrection, but there are still mopping up campaigns for us to be involved with, aren't there? So the historical present tense makes Jesus a contemporary of ours. Jesus is still inviting himself to share the dinner table with tax collectors and sinners in our lives, people like our friend that we've been praying for for these past number of months, for our neighbor, for our coworker, for our fellow student. Jesus is continuing to say, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. And I'd like to come in and sit down at the table with you, with your neighbor. Mark's use of the historical present in today's text is one way we are reminded that the Great Commission is just as important today as it was 2,000 years ago. I say, The Great Commission is just as important today as it was 2,000 years ago. Let's pick up on this sick and healthy metaphor for a moment. Saving people's lives is messy business. Do you have a messy story of how you stepped into somebody's life and their life was full of chaos and sin and its consequences and, and getting them to consider the claims of Jesus was not an easy task and there was lots of pushback and maybe some arguments and maybe some broken relationships, but you hung in. It's messy, messy business, isn't it? The people he knew, who need to know Jesus have messed up lives because that's what sin does, doesn't it? So Jesus uses this sick and healthy metaphor to remind us that missions is messy, dangerous work. And, and how do we normally respond to messy, dangerous work? <laughs> this is where we come up with this word procrastination, right? I'll do that tomorrow. And, I don't know about you, but I've got a task list. There are some items on that task list that have been rolling for a few days, a few weeks, a few months, <laughs> and a few years, believe it or not. That's what we do when we're faced with something dangerous and messy. We want to avoid it, we want to put it off. But Mark's historical present reminds us that this is still the mission of the church. With every new generation, there's a new generation of people caught up in sin who need to be led into righteousness, right? This is still the mission of the church. The church, I like to say, is a hospital, not a holy club. A hospital. Just let that image roll around in your imagination for a few seconds. 
You've been to hospitals. You've visited people who were sick. You've been there yourself, probably. There's tubes, and there's smells, and there's stuff dripping, and, and it's just not a happy place. And there's pain, and there's anxiety. It's a messy place, but that's where people go to get healthy, don't they? The church is a hospital, not a holy club. Hospital work exposes those who are healthy to sickness, but it also exposes sick, sick people to health, doesn't it? Two and a half years ago, I had an interview with the church board of this church at that time, and one of the two things that they were especially looking for was a pastor who would help lead this congregation to be more missionally engaged in the surrounding community. They said, we feel like we have been trained, Pastor John and Pastor Josh, we've been trained, we've been taught, but we need somebody that will help us to, to move out into the community to begin doing things with what we've been taught, to begin engaging people with the stuff that we've learned. We've learned a lot. We're well prepared, but now we need somebody to push us in, into mission. We need somebody to stick their thumb in the back and help us to, to get outside the door. That's literally what they told me. So let me remind you of the missional model that I brought with me to this congregation. It begins with worship. The Great Commission begins with worship. It begins by people sitting around a table with Jesus, listening to what he's teaching, benefiting from his wisdom, being touched by his miraculous healing powers, having our minds and our hearts changed from sinfulness and selfishness to selflessness and righteousness. Worship is the beginning of the Great Commission. Sitting around the table with Jesus, waiting until we are filled with his salvation and his spirit. And two and a half years ago, the church board said, we've been sitting around the table long enough. The second step in this missional model is mission. The church exists for one reason. That's to make more disciples. Go and reproduce. Go and make disciples in the power of the Holy Spirit. Move into the neighborhood of sick people and dying people and sinful people and messy people and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. The abundant life that he has given you is something that he wants to overflow out of your life into the lives of other people. It begins with worship around the table with Jesus. It moves on to mission, going and making disciples. And the third and final part of this is community. What happens when we leave the table and we move into the neighborhoods and we lead people to Christ? They become a part of the body of Christ, the family of God, the community of Jesus Christ. And we love that, don't we? 
I'm, I'm thinking about you know, the, the prayer support that we have, brothers and sisters in Christ who know us and they care for us, they love us and they're praying for us. I'm thinking about the, the way we pass wisdom on to one another in Sunday school classes and life conversations. I, I'm, I'm thinking of all of the things that we do that make us love being a part of this particular body of Christ. The warm feeling of knowing that you're, you're known, you're seen, you're understood, you're a part of something big, bigger than yourself. And then, of course, there's potluck dinners. <laughs> and I don't know about you, but I cannot wait Amen. <laughs> for the next potluck dinner. The Oasis group got together few weeks ago, they're getting together this week, sitting around those tables in a socially distant sort of a way and, and beginning to experience that face-to-face -face fellowship again. I cannot wait for that kind of fellowship, for that kind of community. But I have a fear for the next few months. My fear is that we are going to we long so much for that community. We long for those ways of interacting face-to-face -face with one another so much. We have missed it so mightily that when we're able to come back and have those kind of relationships, we are going to focus our attention on that. I want to go back to church. I want to spend time with my brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to have a potluck dinner. I want to hug people. I want to shake hands with people. I'm sick and tired of fist bumps, bumps and elbow bumps and, and no hugging. I, 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 want to, I want to be a part of that community. And, and, and who cares about the mission? I just want to get together with those people that I love so much. That's a danger, isn't it? Because potlucks are fun and it's good food and it's good fellowship and it's warm and it's safe and it's comfortable and mission is messy and dangerous and full of potential failure right so our tendency is going to see, well, let's just wait a few months and enjoy each other's company, and, and then we'll do that. And if it's like my task list three or four years from now, we'll still be next week. I'm going to start that diet on New Year's Day. It begins with worship, sitting around the table with Jesus, where he sets us free from sin. It moves to mission where we take that to other people and we let it overflow out of our life into them. And that results in community. Community is a byproduct of mission. It's not the primary thing that we're here to do. I say community is a byproduct of mission. It is not the primary thing that we're here to do. Part of the value of Mark's historical present is that it's drawing Jesus from 2,000 years ago into our circumstances where we can say Jesus is still sitting around the table with tax collectors and sinners. He's still proclaiming life. He's still transforming people's lives. He's still inviting us to be a part of that mission because the mission is to sick people, not healthy people. 
Jesus not only gave his church the Great Commission 2,000 years ago, he continues in the historical present to call us to fulfill the Great Commission through the Spirit of Jesus, who is still with us. Would you bow your heads with me? One of the important ways that we begin to engage in our community is by praying for them, praying for the people that we know, the people who probably don't know Jesus as their Savior. And I've been asking you for several months now to be praying in particular for one person, a neighbor, a friend, a family member, a fellow student, a co-worker, somebody that probably doesn't know Jesus. I'd like you to get that person's face in your mind's eye. I'd like you to bring to mind what you know of their life and perhaps it's messy stuff. What are their family relationships like? What's their job situation? What's their marriage like? What are their habits? What are the hurts in their lives, the hang-ups in their lives? And then listen. Listen as Jesus joins them and joins you around their dining room table on their front porch over their backyard fence across the table in the cafeteria listen as Jesus joins you and joins them in a conversation listen as Jesus says It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is present with you right now. He's speaking these words to you right now. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Deep down, what do you feel when you hear Jesus speak those words to you right now? What do you think? What do you do? Lord Jesus, we believe that you call us to go and make disciples. And Lord Jesus, we believe that you teach us how to pray for the people that 
we spend our time with. Lord, we believe that you open our eyes of faith to what's going on beneath the surface in their lives. You somehow give us insight into what's really happening in their lives, their pain, their misery, their joys. Lord Jesus, we believe that you give us words to speak (laughs) that aren't our words, but they're your words. Lord Jesus, we believe that you take our words and you turn them into your words as we speak them to our friend, to our neighbor. Lord Jesus, we believe that you are the one, the only one who can change death into life. And Lord Jesus, we believe that we are surrounded by death, just waiting to experience the fresh air of your life, the abundant grace of your life. Lord, thank you for speaking to us in our own language and thank you for bringing Jesus into our own time. Thank you for filling us with courage and comfort and assurance. Lord, we give you the week ahead, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. We pray that you would guide our steps, that you would open our eyes to opportunities, that you would help us to have the courage and the humility to take those opportunities. Lord, we invite you to speak through us and to live through us that your mission might be accomplished this week in and through us. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit's thumb in our back. Push us, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.